I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Rana Therapeutics is pursuing treatments for rare diseases such as spinal muscular atrophy and Friedrich's ataxia with a new therapeutic approach that targets a previously unexplored druggable space. We spoke to Ron Renault, CEO of Rana, about his company's effort to selectively upregulate genes as a way to treat and prevent disease, the challenges in developing such drugs, and why the company has decided to initially target rare diseases with the technology. Ron, thanks for joining us. Great. Thanks for having me. Rana says it's working in a new, unexplored, druggable space. You essentially work to upregulate genes that produce proteins that treat or prevent disease. We're going to explore this therapeutic approach and its implications, in particular for rare diseases, particularly spinal muscular atrophy and Friedrich's ataxia, where you're now working on. There's been a lot of work in recent years focused on epigenetics and the role of non-coding DNA, once thought to be junk DNA because it didn't seem to have any purpose. I, I thought maybe you could start with a little science lesson here and how genes that produce needed proteins sometimes get impinged upon. Right. So it's a good place to start. What we do, what we know is, is that there are a number of genes in, in the body and for a whole host of reasons fail to be uh, transcribed or ultimately upregulated. And, and what that means is basically the, the ability for those genes to actually be translated into, into proteins. And with the sequencing of the human genome a little over a decade ago, we, we, we learned a lot about what these genes do, but we also are still pretty early in our understanding and our learning uh, of why these genes are turned on or, or turned off for, for specific reasons. And that has really led to a, 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 a just a huge growth in uh, trying to understand the epigenetic regulation or basically why these genes are turned on and turned off at, at certain times. And what we've learned is that while, you know, a small percentage of the whole human genome is actually translated or transcribed into these uh, gene sequences called messenger RNA uh, that actually encode these proteins, um, much more of the genome is, is, is actually now better understood. And we're learning that uh, um, this, this part of the, the genome that doesn't really code for any, anything uh, plays a much more significant regulatory role in uh, in the production of proteins than, than than previously thought, and that's where our focus comes in, and this focus on on long non coding RNA. Well, well, walk us through your therapeutic approach. What are the drugs you're developing actually do? So we have two approaches, and 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 the first one is a transcriptional approach, or uh, what happens before it actually becomes uh, a protein or, or messenger RNA. And that is, in our understanding of these long non-coding RNAs, these are, are significant 
lengths of, of genomic sequence that don't actually code for a protein, but what they do do is play a role in recruiting certain complexes that play a role in actually repressing uh, the the ability for genes to be uh, to be upregulated into into protein. And our work is based our, our transcriptional approach is based on work that comes out of Dr. Jeannie Lee's lab over at the Mass General Hospital. And what she learned uh, about long non-coding RNA is that this regulatory role that it plays is by recruiting what's called the polycomb repressor complex, or PRC2. And this is a, a, a foundational component of, well, uh, of one side of Rana's uh, research platform. And this long non-coding RNA recruits this complex. And when it does that, it actually... Uh, has a, a follow-on activity of placing this repressive pressure on specific uh, messenger RNA or specific uh, um, uh, sequences of, of the genome that are uh, supposed to upregulate genes. And so by putting this, this repressive pressure on it, these genes are not allowed to be upregulated, and they stay in a repressed state until that PRC2 goes away. And in some cases, that PRC2 on its own will not go away. So our approach is to try to develop drugs that act as blockers between that long non-coding RNA and the polycomb repressor complex, or we call it PRC2 for short. And if you can block that and prevent the PRC2 from, from, from locking in or binding to the long non-coding RNA, we actually see those repressive marks fall away, and we see uh, translation of, of, of the genetic sequence into messenger RNA and ultimately into protein. As I understand it, this has implications not only for single gene diseases, but diseases involving complexes of genes. Is that correct? And do these diseases then represent significantly more complex targets, or is it a matter of still up-regulating up a desired gene? Yes. So for this approach, this actually uh, allows us to target areas that have been previously undruggable. Um, I, I think when, when, when folks think about targeting uh, sequences of, of the genome, they usually think about it in a way to block aberrant or, or faulty genetic sequences and thereby preventing those genetic sequences in, from, per, per, uh, from being translated into, um, faulty proteins that, that can have, uh, you know, can, can obviously have negative consequences that sometimes leads to, uh, cancer or genetic diseases, that kind of thing. And that, that has really been the focus of a number of, uh, genetic approaches that attempt to either downregulate or just basically wipe out the activity of those. Ours is just the opposite. We, there are certain proteins that don't get expressed because those gene sequences are, are repressed. So this does represent a significant uh, landscape of previously undruggable uh, uh, targets in the, uh, in the genome. Well, what's the significance of that in terms of looking at potential treatments for rare diseases? Well, it's a, it's a great question because 
for example, with, with spinal muscular atrophy, we, we, we know that this is a disease where there are two genes, SMN1 and SMN2, and in, in this disease, SMN1 is, is faulty or is, 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 is not present. And as a result, SMN2, which is a largely a, 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 a very similar gene to SMN1, but does not produce 100% functional protein. In fact, it only produce, produces about 10 to 15% of, of the functional protein that, that SMN1 does. But, but in many cases, that SMN2 gene is actually repressed by the PRC2 complex. And so SMN2 represents a very interesting druggable target, but I think that the challenge is always then, how do you get to it? And so by derepressing this SMN2 gene by, by blocking PRC2, we've been able to, at least in, in, uh, in vitro models, uh, show upregulation of, uh, of SMN protein as a result of blocking this very specific um, sequence of genes that we discovered here at RANA, or this uh, specific sequence of uh, nucleotides uh, that, that recruit this PRC2 complex. So that, that really represents the epigenetic nature of this. By blocking that interaction, we can see upregulation in vitro of, uh, of SMN uh, as a result of, of this, 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 this targeting that we're able to achieve. Well, uh, let's talk about your your pipeline. Maybe you can take a step back. You mentioned SMA. What is it, and what? How common is it, and what are the therapeutic options that are available today? What's what's the prognosis for for a patient with that disease? Yes. So, so spinal muscular atrophy or, or SMA. Uh, this is a. It's a very. Uh, it's it's one of the more common genetic diseases uh, in children. Uh, and it affects part of the, the nervous system, and it's, it's specifically the part of the nervous system that plays the biggest role in controlling voluntary movement. And this really what happens is, is, is it, it's the nerve cells that control the muscles all around the spinal cord um, lose their function as a result of the reduction in this protein, this, this spinal, uh, this, this SMN protein. Uh, and this is it, it, this is why it's classified as a as a motor neuron disease. Um, so really, the deficiency of this SMN protein is what what drives this. And the pharmaceutical approach, or or the approach that that you know most uh, therapeutic focuses have had on this, has been to try to get the body to produce more of this SMN protein, whether or not it's taking a gene therapy approach to introduce a corrected SMN1 gene or to figure out how to get SMN2 to produce more of the SMN protein has really been the focus for uh, most of the leading um, the most of the leading um, approaches in the industry what happens is what 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 really happens is there's a splicing defect and you have uh, a, a, a deletion of uh, part of the the, um, the gene sequence that produces the protein. And when you have that deletion, the splicing of the of the gene sequence uh, happens in such a way that your the, the the appropriate protein is not allowed to be upregulated and, and produced. 
And so some companies take an approach to actually try to correct that splicing, or some take the approach like us to try to get the compensating gene, the SMN2 gene, to produce more of the SMN protein. And where are you in terms of clinical development here? We're very early in the in the process process at this point. Uh, we are still working through uh, in vitro testing of a number of. We're using uh, oligonucleotides, which is a a long word for a therapeutic approach that basically means making synthetic gene complexes. This is probably the simplest way to explain it. And so, as you think about the, the genome and the gene sequence, we can make a, a synthetic version of this that can counteract or or um, work in conjunction with uh, the gene sequences. So we, we're in the process of trying to optimize the, uh, the, 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 the compounds, the drugs themselves, as well as trying to understand the best uh, sequence to target in order to get the maximum upregulation of, of the protein. So we're still early days. We've, we've started to transition to from in vitro, which is you know, basically test tube into in vivo, which is which is animal testing. Uh, how how about Frederick's ataxia? What is it? How common is it? What treatment options are there today? And, and what's the prognosis for for patients with that disease? Yeah, so Frederick's ataxia is is a is a therapeutic area that we're focused on, which represents the the other part of our our research platform, which is post transcriptional or after the messenger RNA is actually made. And that's a much different approach that we have there than we do with the uh, with the PRC2 approach. And it's it's a little bit more simple in that um, you have you know while you have certain genes that are repressed, as I had previously mentioned, you also have genes that are rapidly broken down for again for a whole host of reasons. Sometimes it's a mutation. Sometimes it is a a, a faulty signal. To, uh, to 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 uh, to rapidly degrade uh, the protein or, or the, the messenger RNA, and one of our scientists came up with an idea that to use the same oligonucleotides that we're using in the PRC2 approach to stabilize the messenger RNA. So what happens when messenger RNA is is is, is rapidly broken down is that you have enzymes that work in the in in the body that go in and they attack different parts of the gene sequence from, from each side. And when that happens, the gene basically or the messenger RNA falls apart. And so we can use our oligonucleotides uh, to, to basically put on each side of the gene sequence or the messenger RNA and stabilize that and prevent the enzymes from actually coming in and breaking down that gene sequence, which allows the messenger RNA to, to circulate for a bit longer, and and ultimately uh, present a greater opportunity for it to be uh, transcribed into into the actual protein. So for Friedrich's ataxia, there is a, a a gene called the frataxin gene, and this is a disease where um, you have uh, parts of your gene sequence. They're called triplets, and in this in these in this gene sequence, you have this GAA triplet. And for healthy individuals that don't have Friedrich's ataxia, you might have, uh, uh, you know, anywhere from, you know, a dozen to upwards of 30 or 40 of these 
GAA uh, uh, triplet in the in the protaxin gene. But what happens in patients with um, with with Friedrich's ataxia is they have somewhere between maybe 60 copies of this repeat to upwards of thousands of these uh, these repeats in the protaxin gene. And what happens is with more repeats, less protaxin is actually produced. And the number of those repeats is directly correlated to the severity of the disease. So basically what you want to do is you want to get uh, more protaxin produced you want it to you want to prevent it from being degraded rapidly and allow it to be circulated for 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 a longer period of time to produce more of that protein. When we looked at protaxin early on, we realized that it wasn't being repressed by PRC2; it was being degraded rapidly. And so we're using our um, post transcriptional approach uh, to to stabilize that. This is a, uh, it, it's the most common form of hereditary ataxia, um, and it affects about one in 50,000 people in, in the United States. And this is one where both males and females, um, can get this disease. It typically presents itself, uh, in, in the teen years, but it can present itself even as late as, you know, into people's, you know, 50s and 60s and 70 year old, uh, patients. And, and where are you in terms of clinical development here? We're at about the same stage as, as we are with SMA. Uh, we're, we're working in, in vivo and animal testing with this. Um, and this is one where, um, you know, in both cases with these rare central nervous system disorders, as you can imagine, the, the, the models to, to test these compounds in to, to see if it's working appropriately are, are very difficult. Uh, spinal muscular atrophy and Friedrich's ataxia are are difficult to reproduce in in animals, and so that's been a challenge not only for us but for the field. And so we're working through a number of different animal models to um, figure out the best approach to take forward. Uh, but we're hopeful in both cases that we'll have um, optimized compounds that we can take to the clinic uh, by the end of. 2017. Is Rana considered an antisense company, or is there something distinctly different between what you're doing and antisense therapies that use synthetic RNA strands to regulate gene activity? Well, if you think about most of the approaches to, you know, to RNA therapeutics or antisense, it has mostly been around uh, inhibiting or degrading or breaking down or just completely knocking out. Um, specific genetic sequences in order to prevent um, those genes from from uh, from becoming protein. Ours is truly different in that we are trying to upregulate very specific genes and 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 if we're doing this right we're we're upregulating a very specific gene, not 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 plural genes, but a, a specific gene. And that's something that I think is very difficult for people in the field to comprehend because we're so used to knocking out genes or families of genes that actually upregulating genes or turning genes on. We don't know, once we get the genes turned on, we don't know how much we actually need to turn on to have a benefit um, for, for patients. But we're actually turning on the, the body's own endogenous or internal genes. 
So this, we're not introducing an external vector like we see with gene therapy or introducing a, you know, an exogenous full-length uh, gene sequence that, that was constructed in the lab. We're basically just taking the biology of the body and trying to leverage, you know, that understanding to turn on and upregulate very specific genes. And I think that's what truly sets us apart, you know, and, and focusing on long non-coding RNA to do that or, or specifically stabilizing messenger RNA, I think really is what sets us apart from, from anybody else in the field. Antisense therapies have faced big challenges because they have a, a very short half-life there active in the body for only a very short time. And because they're difficult to get to where you want them in the body, are these issues for your therapeutic approach? Yeah, I, I, I wish that I could, I, I wish that I could tell you that it's not delivery is, is, is a, a, a the Achilles heel for, for antisense therapies and for just about all, you know, all genetic therapies in, in general, um, because you're, you're trying to get to a number of different, uh, organ system. The liver is a very natural place to go first, and, and that's a place that we will also explore. And that's a an area that most companies ending end up focusing on because the liver is a natural place for not only RNA therapeutics, but for just about everything that comes into the body to pass through. Uh, the kidney becomes an interesting area. The eye is a very privileged space uh, for these RNA therapeutics to work in. When we start talking about the gut or the immune system or the central nervous system, these become a bit more challenging, but we're developing these compounds in a time where there are probably more companies than ever focused on trying to optimize delivery to these previously challenging uh, um, sites of, 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 of action like the central nervous system or, or the gut. So. Uh, we are very optimistic that as we develop our, our programs, uh, getting to these, these specific sites will, 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 will become a bit easier. Your therapeutic approach can have significant implications for far more common diseases. Why are you focusing on rare diseases for your lead therapies? That's a great question. And I think when, you know, we're, we're a very young company. The company was only founded uh, about four years ago. And when we first started, it was purely focused on the PRC2 approach. And our understanding of genes that were actually being repressed by PRC2 at that time was fairly limited. And so, you know, a couple of areas that we knew early on that were, were where PRC2 played a, an important role, uh, SMA rose to the top very, very quickly. And it, at the time, it was a significant unmet medical need. Now, SMA continues today in the middle of 2016 as a significant unmet medical need, but there are a number of, uh, of, of, of approaches to SMA that are uh, in clinical development right now. And this is probably, you know, in terms of developing uh, promising compounds for SMA, this is probably one of the best times uh, we've seen in uh, in the treatment of this disease. There's a lot of approaches. Um, you know, hopefully we're, we'll start to see some of the data from these programs over the coming years. Uh, but there's, there's there's a number of approaches looking at at SMA. Friedrichs ataxia has been been a bit more challenging. 
And, and, and so there's, you know, there's a pretty open landscape there. There's a number of, of folks working on this. There's been a few challenges where, um, where, where clinical development programs have, have come up short. So it's, it's, it, it's still a pretty open landscape in terms of what will succeed there. And it's a bit earlier than, than SMA. And I think these, this is why this was so promising, uh, for Rana when we, when we first got started. Um, but as we learn more about our groundbreaking work and, and as we, as we continue to develop the platform in a more significant way, just like the conclusion that you just came to, we're seeing that there are many more uh, therapeutic areas that we could go to. So I would tell you that while we're in rare diseases of the CNS today, our goal is over the coming months and, and years to broaden out into, uh, into areas where they may not be rare diseases, but they may be areas where um, conventional approaches, conventional small molecule approaches have been very, very difficult, and we think we will be successful with our approach. Ron Renault, CEO of Rana Therapeutics. Ron, thanks so much for your time today. Terrific. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.